Karen Baker, and welcome to the Kitchen Confidant Podcast, or maybe I should say welcome back. After a rewarding start to this podcast, I took a much-needed break over the holidays and decided to extend it a little bit. As I allowed myself time to breathe, I realized that, wow, I needed a little more time off. And looking back, I almost don't know how I squeezed so much into 2021 between writing and releasing my cookbook, Meat to the Side, several major client projects, launching this podcast, and maintaining the blog. It was a lot, but I am finally rested, am back in the swing of things, and I'm so excited to share more incredible guests with you. A couple of interviews were recorded at the end of last year, including the one you're going to hear today. And I'm also in the thick of chatting with more food creators, so stay tuned for another exciting year. Today, we're chatting with Nick Sharma, the molecular biologist turned food writer and photographer behind the award-winning blog, The Brown Table, and author of Season, Big Flavors, Beautiful Food, which was a finalist for the James Beard Foundation and IACP Awards. Nick's second book, The Flavor Equation, was published in 2020, also to critical acclaim. And Nick's recipes can also be found in Serious Eats, The San Francisco Chronicle, The New York Times, and more. I am so excited to welcome Nick to the podcast. Hey, Nick. Hi, it's been such a long time. Too long. We were talking before this started and we're trying to figure out when we last saw one another. And honestly, I don't, I, I think you're right. It was a conference probably in San Francisco before you moved. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot has changed. So I always start by asking, what's the first thing that you ever cooked? Mm. And about how old were you? The first thing I ever cooked, at least that I remember, is probably a fried egg because my both my parents worked and I used to get Thursdays off from school. And so I, I think I was about 10 or 11. Yeah, probably around 10 or 11. And I grew up in India, so I, I don't know what the child laws are there. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I actually liked staying alone at home because I could tinker around and do what I wanted. And one of the things just to be safe and not burn the house down was my mother taught me how to fry an egg. That's like the... I think like the easiest thing one should know how to do just in case you have nothing else to survive on. Mm -hmm. So I think that was the skill set she gave me. She wanted to teach me how to use the gas stove. And so I learned how to fry an egg. I think that's probably the first thing I learned to cook, at least that I can remember right now. Yeah, that's a good one. I started with an egg too. And I'm chuckling when you talked about staying home alone. I remember like, I think our generation, even here in the US, it was, we called it the latchkey kids. You know, people just hung out at home after school without any supervision. It's not quite like that anymore, is it? No. <laughs> I mean, I don't have kids, so I don't know, but yeah, I'm going to say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you grew up in India. Can you tell us a little bit more about what life was like before you came to the US and started the Brown Table? Um, life in India. Let's see. So I grew up in Bombay, which is called Mumbai now. So um, let's see. Life in Bombay. I mean, I think I was always kind of a lonely child, not like depressed, but <laughs> and were, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, I was very bookish. I mm -hmm. liked spending a lot of time in books. Um, not that I read fancy literature or anything. I just liked reading books. A lot of them were actually just textbooks because I was so in love with science at the time. So oh, even I, then. <laughs> yeah, it's so sad. And I think my parents were maybe a little disappointed that I didn't have, though I remember vividly that both my parents said, you need to have other interests than reading <laughs> textbooks. And it was always just like the, not, I didn't like physics, so I hated physics. I was never really good at physics. 
um, but chemistry and biology were my two favorite things and um, uh, mathematics. And so these were like my three favorite things. And so I would, this is so sad to admit, but you know, like before school ends, just before summer starts, I was the child that would excitedly go and get next year's textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> so I could read them during the holidays. But then also there was the side of me uh, where I would also get a lot of comics. And so I did read a lot of comics growing up. Um, I was really into crime and mystery novels. So anything that took you away from life. So yes, mm -hmm. I was very bookish and probably a very boring child. I you were motivated, sports. Nick. I mean, you knew what you already wanted to do. <laughs> it, it all, I mean, I hated sports and I know my father really loves sports. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe this was my, my coping mechanism of not having to watch sports and be a part of it, just focus. And so maybe I, it, it's my coping, it was my coping mechanism. But overall, like uh, life in India was, um, it had its ups and downs. I think like every uh, person goes through them. Um, I grew up in a studio apartment, which was in Bombay's very crowded. So I grew up in a studio apartment. We literally had one large room, kind of like New York City. Yes. But um, I guess the poverty levels are a little steeper in India. A little bit. <laughs> in gun comparison. So yeah. So um, and then I was also questioning my sexuality at the time. So then I had those challenges, to, personal challenges to deal with. And it's one of the reasons why I actually moved to America was just um, not only for a better future, because I was coming from a country where the population is so large, the options available are just so few. Mm -hmm. um, so it's so competitive. And then uh, the other thing was like, you know, I just wanted a better life overall um, to be who I was. And so that's those are the reasons why I moved uh, here. What are some of your favorite food memories from Bombay or Mumbai? Uh, definitely eating out a lot because Bombay is such a vibrant city, especially in its uh, street food culture. And I think most countries, uh, especially in Asia, thrive on their wealth of street food because yeah. it's so innovative. Pretty much anything can be made into street food and some of the best dishes come out from there. So that's one of the things I uh, love and still miss. And uh, during college, I remember going with my friends after dinner, we would go late at night it's also one of those cities that doesn't sleep and so mm -hmm. it, everything's open that actually was one of the challenges i had moving to america why aren't restaurants open after like like till three in the morning or whatever because in india they are at least yeah. in bombay and so um we would drive out late at night and there was this stall where we would get kebabs um freshly made on charcoal grills and this man would um uh, weighed in with his cart which had a built-in mobile uh, charcoal grill mm -hmm. I guess he marinated everything at home and came out there made the breads on on the spots was all fresh and so good so that's one of my favorite memories and then um, I think also the holidays for my family Christmas is a huge holiday and for me uh, the thing that I miss now the most is uh, sitting down with my aunts and my cousins uh, and making all the food that goes into the Christmas, uh, you know, it's like a couple of weeks long celebration. And mm -hmm. so like, you know, I miss that uh, in family interaction where everyone's sitting down together, cooking stuff, um, and, you know, doing all those things. Now when we do it on the other hand, because my aunts are older, they're very conscious of their weight. So a lot of the stuff that we used to make <laughs> is no, no now. And they're very, uh, very comfortable telling you not, nope, we're not doing that this year. Oh no, it's not as delicious. <laughs> I know I hear every like the relatives during the holidays too talking about their diabetes and you're like, oh yeah. man. 
So in season, um, you talk about cooking with your mom and your grandmother, but you also talk about your dad and how he loved to make pickles. So I thought maybe we could chat a little bit more about that. Yeah. So in in, in Bombay, our apartment had a cup had I think like um, a couple of really long, large windows, and. It started out with my dad wanting to have plants in the windows. And so he had someone come in and build these grills that hang outside a couple of feet outwards. And mm -hmm. then that supports the weight. It sounds very scary because what if it falls? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, it's quite sturdy. Um, and so at some point, he decided he was going to get into pickling. Huh. And he bought, he went through this phase of buying all these glass jars. And it, it pretty much was insane because there were four people in the house probably half of them, not 50% of them, weren't really keen on the whole situation. <laughs> he would do it and then, I don't know, I don't remember because I was so young, I don't remember if he actually gave them away or he would eat them, but Indian pickles are very different. They're not, um, so the type that he would make, so, you know, like either lemons, limes, carrots, just all vegetable pickles, mm -hmm. and they were, was cooked in spice a lot of like heavy spices and oil which prevents them from you know bacteria growing um, and then you pack them into these large jars they're very different from the american style of pickles um and here you would keep them in the sun which is something oh. you don't do because you want the spices and the oil to cure the vegetables um over months or weeks um in the sun Interesting. And it's it's the complete opposite of what we're taught here. And so he had all these jars. And obviously, because he, you use so many spices, I remember the smells being really intense. Mm. And my sister and I were never really into it. I don't think my sister is still into it because she complains about it. <laughs> she still is an Indian, so she complains about it. And yeah, so he would make these large containers. And, I, and speaking of my sister recently, she told me she wanted to give my dad something to do because he's retired and I think he has nothing to do. And I think he constantly is like, is in business. Yes. So she said, I'm going to give him like a couple of hobbies. And I told, she said, I told him to make one, one pickle. So she said he didn't make one. He ended up making five. <laughs> and she said quantities enough that she could probably sell them for like a couple of months. So like, you know, put them. Oh, and I wow. said, and so she said, I don't know what to do and I'm stuck and he won't take a no. So I said, she says, well, at least he stays out of my, what I'm doing in my life. So. <laughs> I tease my husband that he's not allowed to retire because he would just drive everyone insane. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up along the coast in India. How does that compare? How does the seafood there compare to the seafood here in California? It is so different. And it's very Mediterranean in the way it's just all the dishes are designed. Uh, but it's also so different from what I grew up in eating in India. And in India, this uh, seafood is, I'm going to say it's better uh, because I feel here people play with seafood very delicately. It's treated so kind of like crystal glass that's sitting <laughs> on your table and everybody has to touch it with gloves. You know, in India, on the other hand, I like even when I write recipes and I work with recipe testers and, you know, if the recipe involves fish, they are so sensitive about Fish smell, number mm -hmm. one. The heads. The heads. I was going <laughs> to say that next. The heads, the tails, and the fins, which also bothers my husband. My husband's American, and he struggles with uh, seeing a whole fish when I cook. And I keep telling him, uh, I mean, what do you think happens? In the <laughs> <end>? <laughs> and then the other thing is, um, 
the texture and then it, like in, you know like i grew up eating pickled fish and uh pickled um prawns and shrimp which mm-hmm. are a big part of my mother's culture where and also dried fish that's a huge thing yes um, speaking of smells yeah and so like <laughs> my husband went to uh, bombay for the first time he said what is that smell said, <laughs> yeah you so they have these it looks like clotheslines but they're all dried fish hanging yeah. in the sun and you know dried shrimp and all those things so i grew up eating all of that regularly and i miss that a lot because i don't cook that anymore because of my husband not liking fish it's when he's gone yeah. all those all of that <laughs> and so like the food the spices are obviously much more bolder uh, also a lot of coconut is used because uh, coconuts grow on the coast of india mm-hmm. and so a lot of um the recipes involved um you know coconuts you've got ghee which also has a lot of flavor a lot of spices a lot of vinegars also used at mm-hmm. least from where my mother is because my mother's um my mother's from goa which used to be a portuguese colony right and they introduced vinegar the portuguese introduced vinegar and so that's a large component of their cooking so a lot of strong flavors a lot of coastal flavors in our uh, that accompany seafood i feel here the coastal flavors don't accompany seafood Yes, yes. I you know you're right. You're right and you're right about it how people handle fish here with kid gloves or actually probably want to wear gloves when they handle them yeah. <laughs> because they're so grossed out but um no and I think it's so interesting to the Goan uh, cuisine the the Portuguese influence. It's I remember when I baked your babinka it reminded me so much of the influence to Filipino cooking again with vinegar you know and mm-hmm. uh, the coconut like all of those influences so i see a lot of similarities which is super super cool for me i i'd love to know what was different between writing season and the flavor equation how was that because it's they're completely different books to me mm-hmm. uh i mean one was more crazier than the other so that's true <laughs> <laughs> let's see so the se- season was a much deeper personal book i was introducing myself to a whole new audience um you know people who buy cookbooks and so i wanted that story to be and it's reflected in the name as well where season is not only about the you know seasoning your food but it's also this different seasons in my life that you know changed me and to who i am um and so it pays tribute to my past life in india as well as my current life in america and how all those things merged so that was a much easier book to write at the time i didn't think it was when i was writing the first book when i just started the second book i said shoot <laughs> it was so easy to write because it was all coming from this personal perspective the second book is where i had to come up, try to come across as some somewhat um as a person with a little bit of a brain <laughs> you have a brain though nick <laughs> um, and so what happened in that book was i want i really wanted to write a science book book um and i still want to do more of that where scientists reflected in cooking and vice versa and so to do that i focused on um the fl- on the different compo- components that make up flavor in any meal and um i'm writing that book i realized that oh gosh i need to really explore this from an intellectual level more than i thought i was going to because once you get once you hand in a book proposal once you actually start writing it it never ends up being the proposal mm-hmm. and so so much changes along the way because you're discovering things as you read um and so it just became one of these uh books where i was i remember i think it was 400 pages over the limit so i chucked i oh, not chucked i uh, canceled a lot of stuff out <laughs> maybe i'll put it in another book someday but um 
it was just uh, there's just so much information and the challenge was trying to fit it all in so that for me was um a struggle but from a creative standpoint for me it was one of the most rewarding things i've done because i was finally given a platform to write about the two things that i um i've been working on all my life on was science and i come from a biology background um and then uh tying that in uh with the uh, cooking which is what i do now and so for me that was such a um i guess a blessing in a way to on a privilege to be able to do that so while it was the most grueling book i've ever done to date or project it was the most rewarding emotionally yeah so when that book came out i thought oh my gosh this personifies nick perfectly because it marries your two careers so well i'm curious though do you ever miss the lab there are times when i do <laughs> and this is when i'm actually working on something like a recipe and i'll say gosh i really want to get deeper into the science of this but i don't have access to anything and that's what i miss is the access um maybe if anybody wants to finance me after listening to this podcast <laughs> i'm willing to take funds um but you know what i really want to do is sometimes just explore things to where I can find an answer to a problem. And you know, that's one of the things you're taught in science is to figure out what problems are what people want answers for and then developing solutions to them. And so that's what my approach is with cooking, but I always try to use science or history behind um those solutions to guide me and I'm working on a new book so I'm photographing it, but I kind of want to take the photography use more science in my photography as well. Uh, but um like the last book i was able to go back to uc berkeley well not go back because i never studied at uc berkeley but um i was able to get access to the microscopes at uc berkeley and they let me come and take photographs for the cookbook i was this wondering time, about that like how did you get those shots <laughs> this is how it works in science maybe it works the same way in food you contact someone you worked with or a professor then connects you with someone who they know that they've worked with in the past or met mm -hmm. at a conference and then you get access um so i mean that was such a like a, a fun thing for me to go back and do so i what i really want to do is to actually spend some time doing some food projects that aren't recipe related but more creative artistically because that's something that i also like to do and one of the things i really want to do is more microscopy work in food photography mm. um you need money for that you need uh, access to big microscopes so I was going to say well you're renovating your kitchen maybe you should allocate some budget to creating a lab. <laughs> I I keep thinking about buying a microscope but then you need like air conditioned rooms mm -hmm. things that don't shake and I've got two cats that run around it's just <laughs> hell. You'll get cat fur under the lens. <laughs> because when it's at that like deep resolution you start seeing a lot of junk. Oh, I can only imagine. Do you feel like you're always analyzing the food that you eat? Let's say if you're eating out, are you like analyzing the flavor? If I'm eating out with friends, I I don't it doesn't come that naturally to me because I'm so involved in the gossip and what's happening around. <laughs> me. So it doesn't feel I mean if the food tastes good, you know, and something catches my attention then to surpass the gossip that's being presented in front of me then it's really good food. Out on a mission to taste something, then I do start to make notes and i try i make um i use my phone and i make uh, you know notes in there and store them that i revisit later mm -hmm. um especially if one of the things i really like is the way a lot of restaurants will play with texture you know you could make seven simple dishes that are easy to prepare but when you put them together and you play with textures that's what kind of makes it stand out quite often and so those are the things i try to pay attention to uh in terms of like whether i actually like focus on getting to sciency in 
probably not. <laughs> How is it different living in LA, speaking of eating out, compared to San Francisco? It's very different. I also moved two years ago. I moved two years ago. And what happened was, it's very strange. So I moved when I was writing the second cookbook, uh, The Flavor Equation. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have time to go out because I was in a tight deadline, stuff had to be done. So I was sitting in the in my in our apartment and writing. When that ended, the pandemic hit. Mm -hmm. So I really never got to explore oh, no. it properly. So when people like now I've been here for two years and we're still in the pandemic and finally like getting out, learning stuff. We've also moved, we were living in Santa Monica and then we moved, uh, we bought a house and moved uh, for the North in LA. Mm -hmm. And uh, people asking, what are your favorite restaurants? So I know like a handful, mm -hmm. but I really don't know the neighborhood. So mentally, even in terms of the geography of LA, I know where the cities are within LA County, right. but I don't really know the neighborhoods that well. Um, and I have a handful of restaurants that I go to all the time. Um, so it's been a challenge in terms of the food pre- move i can tell you that i think la is very diverse in its food scene and what i love about la is that you can get fantastic food that tastes really good is delicious at different price points mm -hmm. um and also the way la is set up because i mean it's it is california so real estate is also expensive here but you can have um a lot of restaurants this is also i'm referring to pre-pandemic a lot of restaurants have the ability to survive and function because there's more real estate available for them. In San Francisco and, o and Oakland, where I live, that was always a key problem, you know, rent, uh, rent and yeah. real estate space. That is so true. And it's gotten so much worse in the last two years. But I do think LA has been keeping up quite well in terms of that too. So I also have to ask, you worked in bakeries. Mm -hmm. um, after you left your microbiology experience. Are there things that you learned working in the bakeries that you still use today or hold onto or that really made an impression on you? Yeah, um, time. How to be wise with time. Mm. I'm still not the best at it, but one of the things with working in a bakery is I'm not developing a recipe per se, because I was I worked at a very junior level, just assembling things and you know icing them and baking stuff. Um, so the recipes were already pretty standard in that uh, patisserie, so I didn't have to didn't have the freedom to do much with them. But what was really interesting was learning how to work under speed, still produce something that was of quality and comparable to what was always made. So it had to have that standardized look, feel, texture, everything to a cake. Yes. But at the same time, you have to learn how to make 25 cakes in the first two hours of the every day because it's a business yeah. and people come in, right? And so it it was, you have to be fast, but also get stuff done. And then, um, you know, the other important thing that I learned uh, was to see how collaborations work. Because there was a, I think we had like 20 people um, that would show up within the day at different times. And all of them, somehow their jobs would connect and support the other. Um, so, you know, being in a collaboration was in that kind of an atmosphere was really interesting. And then a lot of the tips and tricks that you won't get from a cookbook. The chef that I worked under, she was amazing. Her name was Alma. She taught me so many little things that I would never have paid attention to. You know, like don't always use a big spatula when you ice a cake, you know, use the start with the smaller one. And it's always oh. dependent on the diameter of the cake and the height of the cake, you know, um, 
What if you want to defrost your frosting faster? Because we make we used to make like large buckets of frosting, keep them in the cold room, bring them out. Um, and so if you don't have time, you know, you heat it up, but you have to be really careful because it's buttercream and it can just become sweet butter eventually. Mm-hmm. And so how to use, a fl- uh, what are those, those uh, torches? Um, and, you know, quickly like thaw it out. So all those kind of things um, just really made, gave me a lot of tips that I would have never learned from a cookbook until I actually went in there and worked with people who had been doing that for years. Yeah, that's so many lessons. I can only imagine time. I think that's a a huge one for anybody. (laughs) So I love that in your cooking, you really take the time to layer spices and techniques to balance flavor. So what are your tips for people to help them understand how to use these ideas to make their cooking better? I think if you have the time, so this is all time dependent, everything is time dependent. Mm -hmm. If you're on a busy day, it sucks to have a recipe that does not work. And I know people don't have the time to sit and fiddle around and try and understand why it's working and not. So that's, I think, something to do on the weekends. But during the week, I think always start at a place you're comfortable at and build from. And that's how I started cooking because if you move from a place where you're comfortable, you can slowly start, you know, building blocks and challenging yourself. So I had, coming from India, I was familiar with some spices, obviously not everything. And then, you know, when I eat out at restaurants, I pay attention to the way people layer spices in their food and even their cooking techniques. So those are the things I started to incorporate. So, you know, for example, if I'm comfortable making, say, roast chicken mm-hmm. you know the first way i started out with um putting spices on top which is what most americans do mm-hmm. but in india we don't do that we put it under the skin because it holds it and then doesn't burn so kind mm-hmm. of like trying to understand compare and contrast um how things work um is so important and one of the things i tell all home cooks is to rely on your intuition that's such an important thing because i think one of the things that has happened with recipe writing is we're giving people visual clues as well as time Mm-hmm. And people become so dependent on that, that they struggle to become independent it, in a way we're trying to make you independent by throwing so much information at you. But right. the disadvantages to that is that it actually had, um, kind of limits you from trusting yourself because yes. you're trusting us so much at this point with the information we're handing out to you. So I always tell people, like, spend time um, lis- you know, listening to sounds when you cook you know, in the oven, you know, the texture, press it. Because to be honest, that's how everyone prior to us were cooking, the previous mm-hmm. generations. Um, we have tried to build in safeguards with all these things. And I think it just limits um, independence. I you know, I love hearing that, Nick, because as recipe writers, we are told you need to give them a visual clue. Um, you're pretty much holding a cook by their hand when you mm-hmm. write the recipe. And it's almost like raising a child, right? You need to yeah. you need to be independent at some point and figure it out on their own and and learn through experience, like you know how, like you know you realize after some time, like oh, you can tell if something is done just by the smell alone, usually, right? Right. Um, so I also have to ask you really quickly. Um, you started a newsletter. This is a cook letter. Yeah. So what made you decide to embrace this format? You have your blog. I mean, how is it different? One of the things I, so I've been doing the blog for a really long time. I can't even remember how long. And I've been looking for a way to refresh and reconnect with people, but also meet new people. And I wanted to do it from a much more personal level 
And I feel a newsletter, it's such, first of all, a newsletter is such an intimate way to connect with people. Not that a blog isn't, but with a newsletter, it's actually going into someone's inbox. So I'm probably taking like a minute or less of your day showing up in there. And I've also just wanted to just take everything, toss it aside that I've been doing for so long and just refresh, re kind of like Madonna used to do for a while, like just remind <laughs> yourself every couple of years. So or share yeah that's kind of like the attitude that i've been thinking i've been i've really been focused on trying to find a way to um grow and develop but also connect more with people that are really engaged and excited to cook with and so the newsletter is very different from what i've been doing previously in this newsletter i'm focusing heavily on tips and tricks for people to make uh, you know cooking easier at home, but also trying to explain the science and the reasoning behind why I'm telling people to do it. It's not like a whim on my mind that I want you to do something, but um, or not do something. You know, that's the mm -hmm. other thing. Like, should you do it? Should you not do it? So I test those things out, and then I bring it to the newsletter and say, actually, like this is what you need to do. Um, you can get this meal done quickly. Uh, but I, what I really love is kind of the intimate storytelling um, platform that a newsletter is and also I get to share kind of the quirky side of me like I what I also end up every newsletter with is um, this is what I think you should cook this week so I give a new recipe but I also suggest things you can make for dinner um, over the weekend like a baking project what I'm watching and it could probably be the silliest uh, show or perhaps the greatest show <laughs> I might even complain about a tv show what are you um, watching now by the way I'm watching The Bridge, and that's something that went out in today's newsletter. It's okay. um, I watch a lot of Nordic crime shows, and so <laughs> we don't get snow in California. Well, we do get snow, but not where I live. Yeah. Um, and so I'm so fascinated with um, the Nordic lifestyle, where it's so everything is just so clean, organized, and then there's all this like stark snow and all these motors are happening across the side. <laughs> And you can never, you can, it keeps you guessing as to like what's happening. Um, and one thing I um, also do is um, I try, I found myself being attracted to TV shows that always focus on food. They're not about food, but a lot of, uh, a lot of TV shows from Europe, Asia, and the Middle East. Yes. They, I watch a lot of, I watch a lot of Turkish TV shows also. Oh. Uh, and they all start off with like heavy breakfast and <laughs> meals but that's not really the focus of the show but that's where I'm drawn so you're kind of seeing everyone's lifestyles being such a like a thing we don't do much of that here in our tv shows I agree I have to tell you really quickly like I, during the pandemic I just started watching a ton of k-drama and my I love just watching the food and the preparation mm -hmm. of food and some of them have nothing to do with food but you're just watching it's just to see what they're eating and it's so good <laughs> Yeah, I, I keep wondering, maybe, you know, I should wake up and have an elaborate breakfast for me and my husband. I said, no, <laughs> but it's just kind of a really a fun way to understand other cultures. Um, another thing that I do with the newsletter is also I share cookbooks that I'm reading or um, also just books that I'm reading and even comics because I read, do read a lot of comics still. Oh, fun. It's so refreshing, right? <clears throat> There's no rules. You can do whatever you want with the newsletter. Absolutely. I mean, theoretically it's... with your blog too, but I feel like people have created rules um okay so we're running out of time but i wanted to ask what's next for you because you mentioned you're writing another book yeah so i'm actually working on two new books that'll oh come out gosh. over the next couple of years so i'm trying to wrap up the, the first one in the series um and then what else 
what else is happening i'm remodeling a house and writing a cookbook which is the most insane thing to do so i'm in the process of packing and making way and i think we're going to start in a couple of weeks uh, permits pending Ooh. so yeah that's kind of what what's on the horizon right now that's exciting are you photographing these books too I am. I'm going to be photographing these books. I haven't decided what the theme is because I usually like to go with the theme for each book. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll see uh, where this lands up. I'm so excited, Nick. When you publish those, please come back. Okay, before I let you go, I have some few closing questions. What's something that you make when you're too tired to cook and you need an emergency meal? Um, and I did that this morning. It was a hard-boiled egg with on buttered uh, bread. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> How do you like your yolks? Do you like it runny and jammy or? It really depends. Done? I'm a little, I, okay, so people probably hate me for saying this, but I sometimes get very uncomfortable with a runny yolk. Really? And, yeah, I, I feel like I want to throw up. Bananas and eggs, yolks do that to me. So there are times <laughs> when I can handle the egg yolk, uh, but in a, like in the sandwich, no. But uh, yeah, so I like the hard boiled egg um, and I usually sous vide my eggs because that's the best way to do them. Mm, so nice. What's the one recipe that you treasure the most? Probably anything that I've not put on paper right now and it's still in my head <laughs> that needs to go on paper. Isn't that funny how that is? Because <laughs> once it's down on paper, I know it exists for me. I mean, other people too, but also for me to come back and refer to it. But whatever's inside my head right now, I keep panicking. Oh, I need to get that out there. Mm -hmm. Totally understand that. Okay. Are you a messy cook or a neat cook? A little bit of both. I try to clean as I go because that's how we used to work at the pastry shop. So uh, I've been trained to do that. So I clean um, as I proceed through the kitchen. In terms of messiness, I feel like cooking in itself is kind of messy. Mm -hmm. I, and I really try to do my best, especially when I'm measuring flour or I'm whisking something. And I you know, do it with such good intentions to make sure that the cocoa or the flour is not falling out. But I have never not had it fly out and I pass at that moment. <laughs> oh, I totally that I totally relate with that. What's a good kitchen tip? And I know you have so many, but if you could just share one. Organize. You know, it doesn't, you don't I don't think you need to have um specific um boxes or anything to hold tools. Um, I don't know if you've seen the Courtney Cox video of her organized uh, kitchen. That's no. insane. You need to watch it. It's insane. Oh, okay. She's got built out um, like cutouts in her drawers to even hold her can openers and stuff. It just like fits in. It's beautiful. Just for that one tool. Yeah. But I mean, it's like a whole <laughs> drawer that comes out and everything's like fits in there. Like it's a, like a jeweled, like a, you know, jewelry box. Yes. So beautiful. Um, I'd love that, but I don't have that. Um, I mean, I don't have much of a kitchen right now, but what I will tell people is know where your stuff is. And so it might seem a little hideous, but um, if you could do transparent labels like they do in, uh, if you go to any cooking vi uh, video uh, studio, mm -hmm. but they shoot cooking videos, um, usually things are labeled in like okay. in transparent plastic. So if you could do something like that, that's tiny and you kind of know what, what it is, it becomes such an easy flow. Um, and that's something I think that takes away a lot of time if your kitchen is organized from um, the beginning. Really good tip. I love that idea. Everyone get your label makers out. <laughs> <laughs> so every Friday I try to share five little things. Something that makes me smile. Is there something that made you smile this week or recently? <laughs> you made me smile today. We've been laughing so much. Oh, yay. Um, uh, I mean, do I need to use some? Let's see. Um, I rescued my Makrut lime plant. So that's made me smile. I thought it was dying. It, I thought Aww. it had died um, 
from the beating that it took in this hot weather, but uh, mm-hmm. it's lost everything and it's managed to come back. So I'm very happy. Oh, good. Oh, that's good. Phew. <laughs> you played doctor to your plant. Yay. <laughs> Nick, I had so much fun talking. I could have talked to you all day, but where can people find you if they want to to keep up with what you're doing? Well, definitely on social media. My account handle is a brown table. And that's on um, Instagram, Facebook, um, as well as um, Twitter. And then you can go to my blog, abrowntable.com, or you can find me at my newsletter, which is nicksharma.bulletin.com. Perfect. Nick, thank you. And I can't wait to hear about your next couple of books. So keep in touch. Likewise. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you were able to join us on this episode of Kitchen Confidant. Thank you again to Nick Sharma for joining us today. I have loved watching Nick's journey in this food space, and it's so incredible to see how he blossoms with each project he undertakes. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with a friend and join us again next time. Until then, happy cooking. Happy cooking.